people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Join me once again is Ms. Gianna D'Amelio. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Alistair Pitts. Don't mind me, I just woke up. Thing is, it's hard to hear the cockerel from up here on the fourth floor. We continue our month of discussing Soviet cinema with a look at Three Poplars on Plyushika Street. I'm just, I'm going with that. It's probably not the right pronunciation, but that's what I'm going with. It's the story of Nuria, a country woman who comes to the big city of Moscow to see her sister-in-law. There she meets Sasha, a taxi driver. They share stories and a song on the way to Plyushika Street. He offers to take her to the movies, and she agrees but things go wrong. We will be spoiling this movie as we go ahead, so if you haven't seen the film, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Gianna, when was the first time you saw this film, and what did you think? I don't remember when it was, but the first time I saw this film, I actually turned it off like a third of the way through. And it's because the first time we meet one of our protagonists, a cab driver, he's driving around Moscow in the morning and he picks up this young woman and he assumes because of what she's wearing that she was out the night before and she's just going home now. And he's like pretty rude to her about it. And underneath there's like this romantic piano score. And I was like, what? Like, I don't want to romanticize this judgmental dad. No way. Like, I want to watch a film about that woman instead. So I, t- I turned the film off and I put on July Rain, which is like, it came out like a year earlier in 67. It's about a young woman who feels alive in the city among strangers, but trapped and bored around the people she knows. It's like an Antonioni film with less ennui and, and more heart. I later learned that the directors of those two films had like this history of ideological conflict. So I had inadvertently taken sides. But anyway, I finally watched Three Poplars all the way through a bunch of times for this show. And I'm so glad I did because there's so much happening and I loved it. How about you, Allie? Probably about three months ago in the run up to recording this episode, as I'd suggested it because Tatiana Lyosnova was on my radar as being kind of a big deal for 17 moments of spring, but I'd not actually seen it. And first time round... I guess I was impressed by the prettiness of the of the black and white 
cinematography and the sort of unashamed romanticism, I guess. But just rewatching it and rewatching it for this episode, I, I felt like I it rewarded the rewatches. I had never heard of this film and had never seen it until we started talking about doing uh, an episode on it. I was so confused because I was watching a black and white version and then suddenly something went wrong with my server. So then I had to find a other version of it. And I, it's out there available pretty readily with commercials via a couple different streaming sites, though it's the color version. And I was so confused why there were two versions of this movie, same story, same subtitles, same everything. And then finally I found out that they, colorized it for a showing on Russian TV back in, what, 2011 or something? So, mystery solved, but it was still just like, what am I watching here? And the colorization is actually pretty nice, but my god, the black and white cinematography, to your point, just looks fantastic. And yeah, this movie is beautiful. It's kind of a strange story. I mean, really, when I think about it, there's only about like four sequences to this entire film, the way that it moves, the way that it's plotted, it reminds me a little of like uh, Aki Karasmaki or Jim Jarmusch type of movie. It's very laconic. It's only, what, an hour and 15 minutes, something like that. It's an interesting pace to this. I mean, I, I consider us talking about Amphibian Man, you know, two weeks ago, which was just this raucous adventure and all this stuff going on. And then you have this very quiet type of movie. But it has some similarities as far as we talked about how can uh, Ichthyander go back to the sea once he's seen the big city. Kind of that whole country versus city thing going on in this one again as well. It's a beautiful tie-in. I'm so glad you said that. I was also very happy to see that we start with the dream sequence that we begin in this forest. And I suppose maybe those are uh, some poplars going on as well. Well, I'm not sure, but we start in this forest. We've got this older couple on a wagon. I think we eventually figure out that that is Nuria's in-laws and it's her husband that she sees in this forest and they start making out and the parents aren't very happy about that at all. They just sit there on this wagon being carted along, maybe to death, I'm not sure, but it's an interesting way to start this movie, and we have a few dream sequences from her as we go along in this. We see this blonde woman with a fashionable short hairstyle walking kind of lost through this this grove of trees, and then suddenly a man appears, and she walks toward him smiling, but her face falls, and instead she sees that that wooden older couple, like you mentioned, sitting on a cart in a rural field, and she sort of shakes her head and and moves aside as if she's trying to avoid them. And that happens a few times throughout the film. And then bam, she's making out with this guy and she's smiling blissfully. And then bam, we see her in her bed. And now she has long, greasy hair and a wedding ring. And she sits up and there's that wedding photo behind her showing that younger, more fashionable version of herself and the man she was kissing. We know she's married to that guy, but now she's waking up alone and we see the ring on her finger. The clock is still ticking. It was like this loud, dissonant clock ticking throughout the fantasy. And we look at the clock and next to it is a photo of the older couple that she wanted to avoid in her dream, her in-laws. And it's super economical filmmaking, right? Because we're only two minutes in and we know everything we need to know about this woman. She feels lost. She's looking for something. She doesn't know what. She enjoyed her husband when there was still passion, but now he's gone. 
And she still identifies with her younger self. And she doesn't want to end up like her in-laws with their joyless rural existence. She sits up in bed and we see her framed in the background. The camera's close to the floor. And there's all this heavy furniture crowding out her image. And she's looking down at us. And she just seems so oppressed and so small. And we get the staging twice in the film when it's really important that we feel Anna's desperation. But right away, everything changes because she notices that her daughter's looking at her and she snaps into this kind of cheerful mentality that's very self-sacrificing because that's the face that she shows to the rest of the world. Now, you called her Anna and then I called her Nuria. We should probably talk a little bit about that because I'm not sure why she's also known as Anna in this film. And they keep talking about it, but I never really got the explanation. Yeah, so her name is Anna Grigorievna, but Nuria is a is a nickname for Anna. She says, only one person calls me Anna Grigorievna, and that's this man who loves and respects her uncle, Yegor. But Nuria is like the, the nickname that she's known at home. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I hope I'm not being confusing. It's worth noting for... For listeners who are less familiar with like Russian and Soviet art and culture, is that the Anna Grigorievna is the most polite, most respectful form of address for somebody. And and to be honest, at this point, it's quite an old fashioned way of addressing somebody. It wouldn't have been so much back then, but is the most respectful form. Whereas, as you said, Jana Nura would just be like the diminutive nickname form of her name. So that's what's going on with that. Yeah, that opening sequence is so eerie and almost borderline surreal. Like when you cut between her and the in-laws and when you cut back to them, they're in exactly the same bolt upright pose. They look dead. Like they look almost like taxidermied (laughs) in those positions because they're just staring straight ahead the man has his hand on his hip and his elbow like straight out in this very almost like hyper real pose and and we see in the photo he also has that but it's a slightly more normal relaxed version of that and then again w- later on when when they reappear this kind of ghostly in-laws they're in exactly the same pose it's kind of freaky and i kind of like it because in a film that's otherwise very down to earth and realistic it has it has this more poetic slash ghostly sections to it we meet her daughter we meet her her son pretty quickly we find out a lot of stuff in this opening here we find out that her husband is responsible for she says he's responsible for the river but i guess he mans the boys or takes care of the boys in the river so that they will help the ships through or something but He's not there is the biggest thing. And we also find out that they're in this smaller village, that they're not warm enough in this house. uh, But yet she's just like, oh, no, no, we're fine. Everything's fine. But I think her daughter says everyone's heating their houses and we're here freezing. She's like, no, no, we're all good. And that's all this before the credits even roll. I have to point out like her self-sacrifice and her kind of magical thinking when she's like, no, no, we have the warmest house in the village. It makes her, it makes her a perfect mom by traditional standards. But the way she, she pushes aside her own dissatisfaction and snaps into this perfect housewife mode, it feels a little painful. As a character, Anna Nuria like really looks for joy wherever she can find it, but it makes her seem really vulnerable. And even her daughter in this scene seems sort of 
tough and wise in comparison, opening a film with this very sharp contrast between what a woman wants and doesn't want, and her lonely marriage where she pushes her feelings aside and puts on a brave face. Opening a film this way with this juxtaposition suggests to me as a viewer that like what's going to follow might be a feminist film because it's going to prod this gulf between our expectations of mothers and their own desires and agency. I don't think anyone considers this or any of Tatiana Lyosnova's other films as feminist, but I really feel like this one has potential as we can see as we go through. We will find out. And once we meet her husband, oh my God. <laughs> Fucking Grisha, man. Oh, man. man. <laughs> but she's taking care of everything. She's got her uh, big old boots out there and she's tromping in the mud, feeding the pigs, the cows, the ducks, the this, the that. And yeah, making sure that everything is taken care of. She's uh, washing up by the river. She sees a boat approaching, thinks maybe for a second it's her husband. But no, this old uh, shepherd corrects her. No, that's just this guy who's uh, here to visit the girls. I guess he's just some sort of like boat-bound Lothario type of guy. <laughs> the shepherd is interesting because he kind of comes out of nowhere and starts to talk to her about he who sees the sunrise will have a sin forgiven. And they discuss sin for a little while. And it's like. Does Anna have any sins? Is not that I know of other than just the sin is dissatisfaction of her marriage, but it is completely understandable why she is not satisfied. The shepherd is so fun. He he's almost like a Tolstoyan peasant figure. Like he has all of these folksy sayings, like the one you mentioned about the sin, and he, and then he makes this wise crack about how lazy city folk are and especially muscovites and when he mentions the thing about sin and Nura is like what sin do i have and he says oh yeah no it'll work it work for grisha as well mujiki like guys or because it's a really hard word to translate it's not like the normal neutral word for men always have sin <laughs> is is his observation and and then he says especially greed so he's he's making his feelings about grisha known to uh grisha's spouse right there so that's interesting because they obviously the subtext is that they know each other quite well like he's just fine just talking to her and she's you know not bothered she's like mildly annoyed by him but Nothing more than that. I love how women are supposed to be responsible for absolving their husband's sins, right? Like, she's already, like, up to her ankles in a cold Russian river, washing clothes by hand. Like, she's supposed to face the sunrise, too, because Grisha's greedy. Like, come on. But there's also a nice little, sneak, like, sneaky direct hit here. Anna and the old guy are talking about cattle laws, and he's just like... Now the authorities are trying to get some profit from farms before they worked only for ideas. Oh, snap, you can say that in the film now. Like in 68, filmmakers can kind of obliquely reference corruption in government as long as it's not a major plot point. But the window in which this was permitted is closing and it won't open again until the mid 80s. Which is weird because the director of this, Tatiana Leozanova, she was like, big time into the party right or was that just kind of a no i'm putting out a front like because there's people who are really involved in the party and there's other people who are in the party and are just like great now i can put this on my resume kind of a thing it's a whole complicated soup of things like films were encouraged to kind of act a little bit as safety valves by recognizing the difficulties people are facing 
without ascribing any of that guilt to the government. So you can do it in these like little tiny pinprick ways, but that can't be the topic of your film. Although there are brave filmmakers like Kira Muratova, who we'll talk about next week, who absolutely place that front and center. We should talk about the cutting style in this as well, because here we get our first major shift from country life to city life. It's a lovely match cut from the water behind the old cowherd to the water of one of the tributaries of the of the Moscow River, and we see his boat going past, and we can see the reflections of the bil- big buildings. So we've we've got the water, you know, uniting the two places, but you can subtly see the change from this rural setting to the urban setting. It, it's so nice. It's so well so well done and so subtle. And here we are introduced to a character I'm calling Sasha, but I think, Gianna, you said that he doesn't really have a name in this whole film? He doesn't get named, but he's named in the credits. That's uh, so weird. I might accidentally call him Oleg Efremov, uh, which is the name of the actor. Again, this guy reminds me of somebody from like a Kurosmaki film, or he kind of reminds me of the second angel from Wings of Desire. I wish I had that gentleman's name at the ready, but he's got this kind of longer, more angular face to him. You talked about how he was kind of judgy with this woman that he picks up. I wasn't sure if I was picking up the judginess. I was getting like, he's seen everything. This guy who drives taxi, I think we find out that he's been doing it for 10 years. He's definitely checking her out. We get this shot of her legs in the car, uh, which is interesting because we kind of get a little bit of a, a similar shot later on with Anna, but him looking at her, but it doesn't even seem like it's a POV. It feels like it's from a different angle than what he would be looking at, but we get to see Moscow in the morning and it is just lonely and beautiful all at the same time. And I just like this whole idea of like before the city wakes up, what the city is like. And of course, she talks about how London and Paris are busy in the morning and Moscow is just still not metropolitan enough to be that busy. It's fitting for a proud Soviet filmmaker like Leo Znova to belittle the intelligentsia who admire the West at this point too. He's a little surprised that she's implying that she's been to London and Paris and asks her about, essentially kind of subtly calls her out about it. And by saying, you've, you've been there uh, with surprise. And she says, I, I just know, <laughs> which is just like, no, you haven't been there. And the imagined West is a, is a, is a big uh, theme, especially for the intelligentsia, because it's so hard to go there. You know, lots of people spend a lot of mental energy imagining what it must be like when they have no actual direct personal experience. So I like that. Also, the cowherd is right. No one is up. Except that one guy who's carrying a rooster in a basket, right? Who's the next person to flag down Sasha's car. And I really like that, that we get that nice shot of that rooster in the basket, and then we hear the the crow, and then boom, we're right back to the farm. And now we find out that it's it's not that one crowing, it's another one. It's one of Anna's uh, roosters crowing. So I was like, oh, that's really nice. And we get to, actually, it might not have been Anna's uh, rooster, because we are cutting to Ivanova, uh, this older woman, and, I, and Uncle Yegor. And at first, I wasn't sure if they were actually related or if, like, it was Uncle, like an honorific, but it seems like they are, they're related to Anna's husband. Is that right? Or are they her relatives? I think it's him. 
I thought it was just a courtesy title because Yegor's the only guy who's knight, but I don't know. Ali, do you know anything about this? Yeah, my reading, especially the second time round, that it was more of a, a courtesy thing and that they just seem to have quite a close relationship, which is odd because Grisha seems to really look down on Uncle Yegor. And clearly there is also no love between Ivanova and Grisha either. Ivanova doesn't even seem to like Anna, though, either. She doesn't like anybody. Yeah. <laughs> no. She used to be the kindest woman in the world, but uh, the war took it away. Yeah. At least according to Yegor. He lost his arm, and I think there's a kind of kinship between Yegor and Anna, because Anna's this outsider, and she has this buoyancy and this emotional resilience and this cheerfulness that really sets her apart from everyone else in the village, it seems like, and he's lost an arm, and he's there's a sympathy between them among outsiders. Of course, she's there to ask a favor. Could Yegor take her to the train station in his cart because she needs to go to Moscow to sell some ham and her suitcase is too heavy to carry? They offer her some food and she just seems like ravenous to scarf down their food. I was like, I guess you're not really getting that much at home. And as she's eating, Yegor's like staring at her lovingly, unblinkingly, which is a bit creepy. And um, the wife, uh, Ivanova, just like, gets increasingly annoyed and storms out. I think there's some jealousy there. We get this whole thing, too, where they start talking about how much it's going to cost once they get to, because she's going to see her sister-in-law in in Moscow. Yep, bring that ham. Needs to get a good price for that ham. Got to get a good price for that. I'm like, oh, my God, Grisha, thanks. This whole thing about how, like, if I have a, a 110 in my hands and that's it, you know, even if the meter shows 120, they'll take what I have. And she just seems to know how the big city works. And she's just so sure that she can pull one over on a taxi driver if she's got 1.10, I guess, rubles in her hand or maybe kopecks. So I'm like, I'm not sure what, how the money works. Well, Grisha has told her that's what you do, because it seems to be Grisha is very shrewd uh, about his his money. And there's actually a bit of subtext with why she's asking that favor. Despite his affection for her, Uncle Yeager is like, uh, you can just take the collective farm, the Kolhoz's lorry. They'll be driving with a bunch of cabbages. Just hitch a ride. And she says, uh, yeah, about that. Grisha doesn't like to owe anything to the collective farm, so do you mind? Essentially, I mean, I'm compressing the dialogue there, but that is, there's this subtext of Grisha and the collective farm really don't get on. And I don't know why this is particularly, and maybe with the director's point of view being generally pro-regime, it makes sense that the negative character, the bad husband, is against the Soviet system of agriculture. And I wonder whether his his parents were wealthy peasants or so-called kulaks who were persecuted. That's sort of what I read into it. It's never spelled out because that would probably be going too close to unpopular subject but i wondered whether that was the the subtext of that like that's why grisha has this real animosity towards the kolhoz the collective farm we also get another piece of information right like she doesn't want to ask one of the drivers of the kolhoz trucks because her husband doesn't want to owe them anything so we get this important piece of information about what a good soviet woman is like her husband's sense of honor 
kind of determines her behavior. So what she does and doesn't do is dictated by what her husband feels is right. Oh, boy. And then we get to meet Grisha. Grisha, who is the husband, and oh, my gosh, no tenderness. Why should I pat you? You're not a cow. At least they don't beat you. Talks about how she's his property. Oh, my God. What a piece of work this guy is. Right. And she's saying, like, I thought you'd sleep at home at least the night before Moscow. Like, you've forgotten how to how to stroke me. I've forgotten the touch of your hand. And he's like, yeah, I don't beat you then. Isn't that a good thing? And she, he kind of slaps her legs to get her to stop swinging them because she's excited to go to Moscow. And it seems like he only showed up to warn her not to waste money. And we learned that Anna's going to stay with Grisha's sister, Nina, in Moscow. And Nina has a boyfriend because her husband has been in prison for the past two years. And Grisha is super angry. He wants Anna to tell his sister Nina that if she divorces her husband and ever shows up back at their village, he'll kill her. And neither Yegor nor Anna seems at all phased by this threat. It's clearly normal. And Grisha sort of like carries on this violent, misogynist grumbling. And he says that his sister should should be focused on getting her own daughter married. Uh, Nina, Nina herself has lived enough already. And then we get this key line in the film for me. Anna, Anna sort of beams up into her husband's mean, dirty face. And she says, lived enough? Have I too lived enough, Grisha? I'm only two years younger than her. And of course, the film then pivots around this question, like, what does Anna need to feel like she's really living? And will she find it in Moscow? Such a brilliant observation. And oh, yeah, Grisha is the worst. It's such a stark contrast to what we're going to get in a few minutes when she actually gets to go on her ride to Moscow. Like you said, she's so excited. I love her swinging legs on the back of the cart. And when she gets in the cart and her daughter gets to ride with them for a little while, Anna is singing for a bit. And songs play such an important part to this movie. I really appreciate that, that she's singing. And then at one point, her daughter turns on a radio and she's got her transistor. And we've got this French song that's going on. I think it's French. Is it French? Mm-hmm. And it is just, yeah. just a wonderful moment in this movie. And this is where the, the whole movie to me just sings in this part. I mean, literally, but also figuratively, it just looks gorgeous. And this whole them on this trip, it's just a wonderful sequence. Until the Kolhots truck drives up along the cart and it spews dust and dirt all over it. And Uncle Yeager's mean wife makes a joke about Anna's weight in front of everyone. And she like makes really mean insinuations about Grisha's absence. A little while later, Yegor, who thinks Anna is asleep in the back of the cart, says to Anna's daughter, like, when Grisha brought her to our village, it was like the sun shone on us. And Anna hears this and she looks really forlorn and she has this flashback to her wedding day. And she and Grisha are dressed in their wedding clothes. They're riding toward the village in a horse-drawn cart at full speed. And she's like coy and she asks Grisha like why he chose her to marry. And she's like breathless and teasing. And she's like, are you going to lock me up? And he promises that he will. And I think in this context, locking someone up means being jealous and possessive. Like it's a sign of love for Anna. It's a sign that Grisha really values her. And then we cut back to the present, to Anna's rueful smile, kind of sad, wistful smile, which suggests that Grisha has indeed locked her at home because he's never there and she's stuck looking after the farm and the two kids by herself. And of course, this shows how little he values her. And his demeanor in the flashback is so different. He's upbeat, he's chipper, 
He's still cocky, but he's cocky with the kind of, I don't know, the effervescence of youth rather than the beaten down, weary, I've been around the block and I know. So it's it's funny how she's retained some of that childlike joy, even if to an extent it's an act, whereas he is not anywhere like what he was when they first met. Although I guess this raises the question, is this a reliable memory or is this slightly wishful thinking on Nura's part? I don't know, just speculating. A few more times we cut back and forth, we hear like Grisha's ambitious promises about the kind of house he's going to build them. And we cut back to Anna's kind of rueful smiles in the present. And it shows that her ideals about married life have kind of cracked and disappointed her. But she doesn't quite know what to do about it. Like she's older and wiser, but she seems to have lost direction. And that's why she's wandering in the woods in her dreams. And this makes Anna such a perfect heroine of her day and like the arc of Soviet cinema, because this film came out right at the beginning of a new era of artistic production called the era of stagnation, right? During the previous era, the thaw from the mid fifties to the mid sixties, the focus was on like ideals and the potential of youth to build a new kind of socialism after Stalin's death. But this period comes like crashing to a halt in the mid to late 60s when the conservative new leaders, uh, Brezhnev and Kosygin, start cracking down on what they consider dissent. And so this film was made in 67 and it premiered in 68. And that's a year when like any hopes of a progressive or moderate socialism in Europe were really shattered when the Soviet army invades Czechoslovakia to violently oust a reformist leader and crush the opposition, right? And so at this time, there's like this really widespread loss of faith in Soviet ideology at home, the exploding of Stalin's mythology during the Khrushchev era, and then the crackdown on open debate in the Brezhnev era meant that like many people kind of support the system in public, attack it or ignore it in private. And we hear this throughout the film in these like one-off remarks. But going into the 70s, like more and more protagonists become like Anna. They're like a little bit older, a little bit disillusioned a little bit lost and desperate and ambivalent about how to move forward. And also protagonists in Soviet cinema around this time, like they stop being leaders of groups and they start being kind of individual odd bubbles elsewhere in the world in the late sixties and early seventies with your like Dustin Hoffman's and your Barbara Streisand's like Soviet protagonists become eccentrics like Anna with her kind of odd charisma that makes her stand out. Anna's kind of preparing to leave and she takes off this trench coat that she's been wearing and she's got this like crisp conservative apparatchet skirt suit on underneath and she puts this like clean white headscarf over her head and her daughter's watching her like munching a snack like totally unimpressed by this outfit and in the background we see women Anna's age kind of lounging around wearing like t-shirts and capri pants and like Lou Reed sunglasses. And even in this provincial train station, Anna seems totally out of place. But what's interesting to me is that she's this recognizable oddball. She's kind of styled like this character from a Stalinist film with her long blonde hair and her clothes that make her body look really stocky. She looks way more like a heroine from the 30s or the 40s, like Zoya Fedetova or something than a heroine like from the 60s, because heroines from the 60s, like we think about Gutierrez in The Amphibian Man, they tend to be sort of independent, savvy, slim companions rather than wives, right? And I was reading this essay about Luba Orlova, who's a star from the Stalinist 30s. 
And the author said that um, on screen, Orlova continually had to conceal her healthy sexuality under the guise of a simpleton. And I was like, holy shit, that's Anna. And it's not just looks like Anna, Anna engages with the world with kind of the characteristics of an earlier star. She's, she's open-hearted. She's optimistic. She has a strong work ethic. And it's these qualities that set her apart from her environment in 1968. She's up before everyone else, you know. And even the people who love her find these qualities really surprising and quaint. Like she's this sweet throwback from an earlier era. But the difference, right, is that like stars in the 30s were unidimensional. They weren't allowed any psychology. They were optimistic and hardworking through and through. But with Anna, we see the gulf between this optimism on the outside and this doubt and this restlessness within. So it's almost like this whole film is showing this crack in a Stalinist facade. We see the broken promises, the disappointed ideals kind of like eat away at this traditional Soviet woman from within. I want to say that there's a lot more to Anna than just this Pollyanna type of outlook on life because we see that facade crack. And we definitely see a crack at the end, but we see it slip a few times and just get to see what's really going on back there. But like you were saying, even when she wakes up in the morning, it's her real expression until she sees her daughter. And then it's like, boom, I'm in mom mode now, or I'm in good Soviet woman mode now. And that's what she seems to want to be so much of the time. And it is the just this fight between that image that she shows to the world and the image that she is to herself. Yeah, and it's interesting how her daughter responds to her. So this is jumping back a little bit, but where they're on the car and she's singing joyfully, you just see how the daughter just like rolls her eyes and is like, oh, goodness. It's funny how she's picked up some of her father's cynicism already and just like how she's kind of affecting this, the daughter, I mean, this more weary kind of like oh my mum's so embarrassing thing when she doesn't know the half of what's going on under the surface with her mum yeah and it just serves to isolate anna more like she's really the naive one in this whole village at least this very sweet very sweet one so we get to go to moscow and we see a much busier moscow now than we did before the city is now awake we get a lot of people out on the streets we get old women selling flowers we get Anna waiting at the train station to be picked up by a taxi, and it seems like people aren't really paying attention to her, but Sasha does. And when she gets into the car, well, actually, even before we have her picked up by the car, we get to see him with his current fare, which is this old Uzbek man who's got this... Um, I described it as a funny hat, but it's not that funny. But he's sitting in the back seat, and they're having a whole conversation. And I was trying to figure out what they're talking about, because there's something about uh, a voice, you know, who was on the, the phone or something. Is it Was he sent to pick up this man? Is that what I'm picking up on? Yeah, so I think what ha- what's happening, and this when I lived in Turkey, this would happen too. Like you, this older Uzbek guy gives the driver, Sasha, a number to call. And he's like, call, call my relatives, let them know I'm coming. And Sasha does. But he dials the number and the people on the other end of the phone like don't know what he's talking about. And he's like, well, I guess I better drive him anyway. Is that right, Ali? Did you get the same thing? Yeah, that's how I interpreted it. And I wondered whether the situation is that you've got like a big group of 
Uzbek folks living crowded in the apartment, and that's why the people who pick up the phone don't quite know what the taxi driver is is talking about, and that's why you can hear them kind of like sort of yelling over their shoulder. I mean, you never see the other side of the conversation. You just hear it on the phone in Uzbek to whoever else is in the room with them to try and figure out what this guy is is talking to them about in in Russian. So eventually it does work out, but yeah, the taxi driver feels like he's been put in a bit of a situation here with his this relatively vulnerable old guy that he's he's now in charge of. I wondered why the grandpa, who does look quite elderly and frail, couldn't have just gotten out of the car and made the phone call himself. Um, did not make sense to me, but I, I don't know. <laughs> So a lot of Soviet families are living in communal apartments at this point still. So it's like a, each family has a room in the apartment and you share the bathroom and the kitchen and the telephone if there's one. And so there are often like a lot of systems. If you were going to someone's communal apartment and you only wanted to, and you were trying to see someone in one family in the apartment, you would ring the doorbell a certain number of times so that everyone in the apartment knew that the visitor was for that family, if that makes sense. And I think there were also telephone ring systems where you would let it ring a certain number of times and then the person in the apartment would realize like oh it's for this family in this room and so then they would pick it up the next time so maybe sasha didn't know the the code maybe even grandpa didn't know how to use a phone possibly it feels like this whole movie is really kind of pointing out moscow thinks that it's a big city but it still acts like a small city that it, it wants to think that it's this major center, but yet it's still stuck. I mean, you're still picking up guys on the street with a chicken in a basket. And you don't tend to get that in the larger cities. Or you've got, yeah, grandpa coming here from Uzbekistan and the, the whole family's living in one big flat and everybody's crammed in together and you've got your party line and your different ring systems and stuff. Yeah. And if I'm a good Soviet director, I want to be like, see, we're all just the same, right? Anna eventually gets right from Sasha, and either he or the camera is checking out her legs, because the camera feels a little too low to the ground to actually be him, but we definitely get a very long, lingering shot again on her legs, and her holding all these this like vegetables and stuff in her uh, lap. She's kind of taken aback that the old man is in the cab at the same time, and, of course, she's super suspicious of the taxi driver, just like, don't try to cheat me. I know the way, like we were talking about, she's, she's got this system down that Grishka told her. But she's also so excited to be on this cab ride and sees this dog sticking its head out of the back seat or back window of a car and is super delighted about that. And then also laughing like crazy because there's a stocking hanging out of the trunk of the car. And I'm like, okay, I'm not sure why this is so funny, but she sure gets a kick out of it. And I'm so happy to see her happy. Yeah, there's this Airedale with like a gold collar with like giant gold medallions hanging off the collar. And so it's like this comically kind of oversized statement about real wealth disparity in the USSR. Like it's so silly that it's not a serious critique. But then this rich family is again undermined because its underwear is sticking out of its trunk. When Oleg slash the camera slash us, when we're checking out Anna's legs, she's kind of like fiddling with her skirt to pull them down. Like, and, and the film is setting up this discrepancy between the young 
citified intellectual woman who doesn't care about her legs showing and this good Soviet woman who is covering up. And it's like she knows that the camera is looking at her legs right now. Slash Sasha, right? Because he reaches down and he like fiddles with some knobs really close to her knees. And then the Uzbek gra- grandpa's like got his head kind of like looking between them. And he's like giggling because he knows there's sexual tension. And it's like something's, go- something's going on. And she's like so weirded out. She's like, you can't fool me and abduct me for your weird plan that involves an Uzbek grandpa. Yeah, leave that one for Eli Roth. And she's so delighted by being in the big city, which is very much in contrast to the cabbie, who it's just another Tuesday for him or whatever day it is. In a way, he kind of looks down on her just as a bit of a country bumpkin, which, to be fair, she is to an extent. She is, but she also calls him out on that thinking leader, which I really like. Like she's she's quick though, and yeah, it's it's worth mentioning too. Like no other cabbie would pick up Anna with her giant suitcase and her one ten cab fare, and Oleg is this like grumpy guy. He's got a face like a crumpled paper bag, and he 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 picks her up because he just can't stand to see her stuck there in the heat. Like he's doing it because of his own damned morals, not because he likes her. He hasn't even made eye contact with her at this point. There's like a real, a real Humphrey Bogart vibe about Oleg Efremov in this film. He's a man who pretends not to care. And he walks around in this sardonic shield that then gets opened up by love. Eventually, they drop off the Uzbek grandpa, the whole family. A lot of people are there to pick him up. And then we get really the longest and, to me, the heart of this movie, which is the rest of the ride and the conversation between Oleg and Anna and it. this whole part. I mean, this is why you see this on the poster image, on anything that you're looking at. It's those two in this car. And this just becomes amazing. And there's a lot of data that's being delivered here a lot of conversation going on and you're looking at this on several levels there's the the conversation that's happening but there's also the looks between them the actions that are going on when they let the the grandfather out there's some talk about how there was a an earthquake in Tashkent and that she has no knowledge of it, and Anna has no knowledge and so he's just like oh don't you ever read the newspaper and then she starts to talk about all of the news that is going on in her village. And I love how this goes because she starts talking about all of this. He's noticed that it's going to rain. He gets out of the car and starts putting on windshield wipers, which I guess you just don't have on all the time, maybe because they'll get stolen perhaps, but that's exactly it. They were in short supply enough that if you could nick them, you could sell them on for for a pretty penny. So that meant that if you were savvy, you took them off when they weren't in use, because otherwise they were liable to go missing. And then you'd have to fork over quite a lot of money to get new ones. So that's that's the whole deal with that. It's such an odd Soviet thing. And him outside of the car, looking at her as she's just prattling away about all of the concerns that she has in life... And he is just kind of looking at her, can't hear her. We can't hear her as the audience. She seems to be unaware that we can't hear her. And he is just observing her. And I think that's when he kind of starts to fall in love with her. I don't know. His attraction at this point felt a little bit condescending to me. Like she's this caricature of a country woman and he admires her blend of 
ignorance and sincerity because he reads it as purity compared with his scorn for the westernized woman with the bare legs earlier. It's ridiculously charming. And it's interesting too, because this is one of the few moments in the film where I, our identification switches from Anna to Sasha. And we were outside with him looking in at her. So they talk a little bit more about her name. This was when I was like, why is he calling her Anna Grigo? Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to try to uh, pronounce that. <laughs> Sorry. She talks about how she was afraid of the old man that was in the car. He talks about how his family died during the siege of Leningrad, that they took us kids to a sanctuary in the Volga. So I was trying to pin down exactly what was going on with the siege. I mean, when was that World War II? Yeah, so it begins in September 1941, and invading Nazi troops encircle the city from the south. And the collaborating Finnish army complete the encirclement from the north. So so basically nothing can come in or out of the city. And then the Germans just bomb the life out of it for two years and I think four months. And then the intention was just to kill the entire population. Some historians classify it as genocide. And a lot of analysts these days are comparing it tactically to what the Russian army is now doing in like Mariupol. Yeah, famously grim siege that is under known in the West. I mean, it got so bad that you had literal cannibalism happening because people were so, so desperate. It was, they would eat the dead bodies of people who'd perished from starvation. It was that bad. That's when um, Alexander Belyaev, the author of The Amphibian Man, died for a little bit of grim trivia. Way to tie it back to that first episode. Well, and Ali, you also picked up on the idea of him saying that he's from Peter rather than from Leningrad because of the name change that goes on there, which I think they changed it back now. We're back to St. Petersburg. Yes, we are. Yeah, that that city has changed its name quite a lot because uh, it was St. Petersburg from its founding. Briefly in World War One, it was Petrograd because Petersburg sounded too German, which is not good when you're when they're trying to kill you, and then it became Leningrad. But I guess because he's a local from there, he still colloquially refers to it as Peter, which seems to throw her off, which is weird because I feel like she would have known that it used to be called St. Petersburg, but apparently she's like, well, where's that? And, the, and he's like, Leningrad. He's like, oh, right, okay. <laughs> Maybe that's pointing again to the fact that she's rural and not that formally educated, but maybe I'm reading too much into that as well. And around this part is when he starts looking for a song on the radio. And yeah, there's a whole discussion here about music. And this is when he asks her to sing and she starts to sing for him. And I, yeah, this again, it's one of those moments where you can really see that he is moved. How do you describe it? A paper bag of a face? <laughs> you can see movement on that paper bag. You can see that he is actually very touched by the way that she's singing to the, to him and, and to us as the audience. It's really, just really nice. And I guess this uh, song that she sings is called Temptation. I think it became... Well, it really became associated with the film. And then I'm not sure if it was a hit beforehand, but I think it became a hit since then because of its association with this film. This movie actually was very popular, if memory serves. Should just say it was the song's title was Tenderness. Tenderness. Thank you. I was thinking of uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins here. It's a big coincidence because 
she knows the song, but she doesn't know what it's called. She's only heard parts of it on the radio. And so it's the fact that this song that she really likes, but doesn't know the name of it, whereas he name checks it as tenderness. She then just sings that, sings it. And he's like, yeah, that's the one. And the fact that they both like this song as much as they do is the kind of the magical romantic or maybe this is meant to be moment for the two of them. At least that's how I read it. It seems almost like a 1980s US romantic comedy kind of moment almost in its serendipity. It's the perfect neat, cute type thing, right? Because Oleg is looking for, sorry, I'm calling him Oleg if I'm off his character's name is Sasha. Sasha is looking for a song on the radio because they've parked because it's raining so hard and he has his arms stretched behind on a seat and he's asking her if her husband treats her well and she gets uncomfortable and says yes. And, and so he's like, okay, I'll turn on the radio. And he's looking for his favorite song, Tenderness, and he can't find it. And she's like, oh, I have a favorite song. And he's like, why don't you sing it for me? And she does, and she's singing the first lines. And that's when his face changes, right? That's when he gets so moved. And we can't, we don't know why at this point. And then later, we realize that Anna is singing an older version of the song that he'd been searching for. But that's hidden from the audience until the very end of the film. Right now, Anna's singing a beautiful song, but Oleg seems like overly moved by it and we're like what's going on with this guy and i have to say like i'm hard on this character but oleg yefremov is an amazing actor like he was a real star and he deserves it like he he barely gets to move throughout this film he's stuck in a car the whole time or he's stuck next to his car the whole time but he conveys so much with small gestures and intonation and he's a great like eye actor as well yeah the only time he's really more than two three meters away from his car is when he sees a um, the rain has stopped and he sees a billboard for a movie, and then he eventually stops his car and he goes in to buy tickets for them, which I found to be very interesting because she's sitting in the car, he's out of the car, and she's super nervous because she starts looking at the meter and just seeing how it's ticking away, and she is panicking that he's going to try to take advantage of her monetarily and just you know, oh, she sees this quote-unquote girl outside of the window, and she's trying to get her attention. And meanwhile, he's inside of uh, the movie theater trying to buy tickets. And my God, the line for the <laughs> buying the tickets to this movie—I guess Soviet cinema is pretty healthy at this point, if we're to judge by this line <laughs> of all these people. And he, what is he tries to? Buy, he tries to have an old man buy a ticket for him um, just because he doesn't want to wait. And the old man is not very happy about that at all. Um, strangers in this movie are not very helpful. Like Sasha's helpful, but this old man, this uh, boy that was mistaken for a girl, everybody's just like, hey, go suck eggs. I mean, that's standard big city behavior. Like, good luck getting somebody in New York to buy you a cinema ticket. <laughs> But and of course he ends up, you know, sneakily getting the tickets because he pretends that he's driving a Czech delegation. So he, and then we see an army general behind him doing the exact same thing. So this is another little jokey aside about Soviet life, about how the important people don't have to wait in line. Can we just go back to money for a minute? Because 
throughout the film, money comes up like this refrain. Like it's it's used to show the quality of a man's character to contrast the good Soviet guy, Oleg, with the bad husband, Grisha. Like Grisha hounds Anna about money, about not wasting it or losing it. Oleg continually demonstrates that he values spending time with Anna more than money. And this is demonstrated because like after she finishes her song and he's almost in tears because he's having this huge realization, he's like, well, Anna Grigoryevna, like, I'll, I'll turn off the meter. I'll just show you Moscow. Do you want to go around Moscow with me? And she's like, she wants to, but she's like, no, I got to get to my sister-in-law's apartment because she works a night shift and she'll be gone soon. And then he gets disappointed. And I think that's why she's worried that Oh shit, like I said no to him and now the meter's running. You know, now he's gonna now he's gonna cheat me out of disappointment. She's in a really vulnerable position, I have to say. Like if a cabbie was hitting on me, even if I liked him, like I'd be pretty I don't know, I'd be pretty uncomfortable. I just don't like to sit up front with a cab driver. I like I prefer that distance. I like sitting in the back. A lot of times I end up sitting in the front just because if I'm traveling with a few people, they're just like, oh, Mike, you've got the longest legs. You sit up front. And it's like, oh, great. Because unfolding myself to get out of the back of a car is not a very funny sight. Well, it's not funny to me. I'm sure it's funny to other people. <laughs> but yeah, I just I don't like that nearness. It's like even Uber and Lyft drivers, it's like, no, no. Thanks. I'll sit in the back seat. Thank you very much. Cause I don't want to be your friend. And yeah, and, and I don't want to be your, your boyfriend or girlfriend either. So yeah, quit checking out my legs. Thank you very much. Those long legs, Mark. Those long legs. Those long, sexy legs. Yeah. And they agree they're going to meet up and go to the movies later. And you talked about how this reminds you of like an eighties or nineties meet cute. It reminded me a little bit. I guess it was a nineties movie. It reminded me a little of, um, before sunrise like this whole thing of them together and it feels like there's there's a literal timer in this movie which is the meter for the cab but yet it's also you know her having to go back to the village with her money with uh after she sells her ham and stuff but yeah just something about that love and that they never fully connect you know it's like okay we'll meet back at, at this place and we're going to go to the movies, you know, seven o'clock, I'll see you here kind of thing. And then the uh, movie takes a little bit of a turn because then we get to meet uh, Nina, which is Grishka's uh, sister. Anna really starts to parrot Grishka with the some of the critiques of Nina as far as how she's too skinny, she uses too much makeup, all this kind of stuff. You know, when's your husband coming back? And Nina's like, listen, I'm happy now i've got this boyfriend i am really happy you know fuck all that other stuff it's all about me right now it's one of those moments where i just wanted to like cheer for nina because it's like yes you know you go girl you've got it you do this up because sounds like your husband was a real piece of shit and i don't know if that light bulb is fully going off over on his head yet or not but it's just like man you should really learn from nina's example it's amazing how frank this discussion is about husbands and brothers who are violent and controlling. And these two women argue about the right of women to make their own decisions, pursue their own desires against the wishes of their male relatives. And they also talk about like whether living their own lives is wise in this environment where brutality is the norm. I got so angry at Anna for carrying her husband's like fucked up entitlement to control his sister into her apartment, right? Uh, oh man, it's like Anna shames Nina for allowing herself to get divorced 
Nina describes how when her husband ever bothered to show up at home, he would beat her and their daughter so much that the daughter had to start going to night school where teachers ask fewer questions and and they're more used to real life. It's painful. And then and then Nina's like, oh, Anna, like you can't understand this because your marriage to Grisha is so perfect. He's always by your side. You're always under his wing. And Anna starts to cry silently. And Nina eventually realizes and she's like, what's wrong? And we expect Anna to say, actually, Grisha's never home. He treats me like dirt and I'm considering going out with this hot cabbie. But but instead, it gets way darker, right? Anna says she's crying because she feels sorry for Nina because when her husband gets out of jail, he's going to hunt her down and kill her. That's when Nina's like, you feel sorry for me? Look, I don't have any bruises now and and Grisha's not our master and we don't need his permission. This is super striking because for the first time, Anna is the bitter, cynical character who creates tension, right? This is also the first time she's been alone with another woman, which makes me wonder whether her cheerful kind of appeasing attitude has been a front, like a survival strategy for getting through interactions with men and kids. And that line that she says, she says to Nina, like, Ugh, and when your new boyfriend gets used to you, he'll beat you too. And like that, that to me really explains Anna's behavior in the film, right? It's why she's so subservient to Grisha. She expects violence. She expects abandonment. Like she didn't bat an eyelid when Nina was describing these things to her. And she thinks Nina's an idiot for inviting retaliation by making her own decisions. So like if all, if all men are like this, if you expect it, why bother changing partners? Like why go out with anyone new? Like you said, Mike, Anna is telling Nina like, Ah, you're like this other creature, the city girl with all this makeup. And that's in the script. But when we're watching this scene, we're watching Nina get dressed to go out in an outfit that isn't that different from Anna's. And she's not noticeably wearing that much more makeup than Anna. The characters looked really similar to me, at least. And I think that really undermines the misogyny that Anna's spouting, the slut shaming, right? Like, it seems like this this really unfounded, bizarre judgment imported from the countryside that isn't true. And the really, really the only difference between them is that one woman has gotten a divorce, which is something that was never that uncommon in the Soviet Union, certainly not in the late 60s, but it's much more common in cities than in the countryside. So I think this scene really highlights Anna's conservatism as being out of place. So eventually Nina leaves and we get to see her new beau, but... We don't hear the conversation. We're at a distance from them, and they talk before they walk off. And then we kind of start what I would consider the longest, but it's mostly long because it's it, it feels like time is stretched out. It's not actually a long sequence, but it is a painful sequence because it is now her, Anna, faced with this decision – do I go out with the cab driver? Do I not go out with the cab driver? Her alone in Nina's apartment. There's an interesting thing where she's going through photos. And I think she thinks that the one photo she picks up is Nina's boyfriend. And I'm like, that's not her boyfriend. I'm sorry to say. And then she flips in another picture. is uh, Jean Gabin from um, Grisby. So many of the movies that we have discussed uh, with him in it super super handsome french man and uh yeah i was like you know hey i think she just has photos of actors here so you know I, it, that was kind of neat that she did you know i i wouldn't mind a picture of of him uh, uh by my uh vanity but yeah it was like 
I, again, kind of showing that she's a little bit of a country bumpkin here. Um, but what was great is that we've got these photos around the mirror and everything, and the camera pushes in, and it doesn't push in on Anna. It pushes in on Anna's reflection in that mirror, and then that starts us off on another kind of dream sequence. And it's just so nice that this movie has these little breaks in here to have kind of her inner life, her inner thoughts, and just what could be. And my goodness, it is such a a nice sequence. The room darkens around Anna and her blonde head. She has this blonde upsweep and it kind of gleams in this like really unearthly way. And we zoom in on her blonde upsweep in a way that felt to me like a reference to Vertigo. It, which came out exactly 10 years earlier. I don't know if it's a reference, but I couldn't find out if it had been distributed in the USSR, but it really felt like a vertigo moment to me. In the dream, we see Anna waiting alone in a courtyard with her heavy suitcase while she sees a man carry off Nina in the distance. And then there's this super alienating fisheye effect and Anna comes home to her cottage in the village, but everything's wrong. No one's happy to see her. She's wearing Nina's clothes. Um, and Grisha's like super cold. He like interrogates Anna, but he won't let her answer. And his parents are there, the scary in-laws. Ghost in-laws. And they're sitting in the corner of the room staring at Anna. And Grisha's like, what gifts did you buy for them? And she's like, oh, but but they're dead, Grisha. And he's like, even dead. They're waiting for what's theirs. They weren't given enough in their lifetime. And she's like, I'll give them something of mine. And she opens the suitcase. And to her horror, like the meat and the money are still there. She didn't sell them after all. She didn't do what she was supposed to do in Moscow. And Grisha, like, disgusted, like, throws the money in her face. And you can see the coins hitting the actress. It's really intense. This, this whole thing about, like, them not being given enough during their lifetime. To me, this this really speaks about, like, the burden of tradition on Anna. This idea that we owe something to the people who raised us, who sacrificed for us. So we have to repay this debt by following their example, by living in this patriarchal family structure. We take on these responsibilities. We sacrifice ourselves in these ways. But we still have this loud ticking of the clock, right? So it's like time is passing. What are you going to do for yourself when your life is entirely driven by this debt, this sense of duty? And even when when your traditional life turns violent, when it's sucking the joy out of you, like when are you going to say enough is enough? And then what's your alternative, right? And we get to see that Sasha is out front waiting by his cab. Now we start going back and forth between the two. I was reminded of, you know, you mentioned Vertigo. I was also reminded of things like, uh, was it an affair to remember the whole thing of them meeting at the uh, Empire State Building and just like, you know, all of these things were like, okay, we need to get to a certain place at a certain time. And that he is, speaking of far away so close, he is, she can see him outside. And she just keeps looking and thinking, am I going to do this? Am I not going to do this? And she goes over at one point and hears steps in the stairwell. Is that right? And she ends up locking the door like, no, no, I don't want to see him. And somehow she basically fucks herself over, right? Because she locks herself in the apartment. Is that what I'm picking up on? This puzzled me so much the first time I watched it. And I watched it several times to figure out what was going on. And I think that she's just so overcome by pent-up emotions that she does temporarily lose lose the keys and effectively lock herself in because you see 
her look at where she thought she'd put the keys, but they're actually on the suitcase and she's just stuck in there. And then a little bit later, you see her holding the keys and kind of caressing them when she's calmed down a little bit and it's too late. But yeah, it's just this, she's so torn between doing the quote unquote right thing and doing what she wants to. And she's so distraught by the fact that she wants to go out to him, but now she can't. Well, it seems very Freudian to me that she locks herself in the apartment, quote unquote, accidentally. Did you really mean to do that? Is that your subconscious telling you to not go to this man? I mean, you know, it's one of those like, why would you do this if you didn't really want it in your heart kind of thing? I read this completely differently. Like I read it as, so she panics and she locks herself in. She leaves the keys on her suitcase. She sees all like turned down customers because he's waiting for her. And she's like, my husband won't even come home. And here's this man standing outside waiting for me for over 40 minutes at this point, based on a few hours acquaintance. And he's like turning down money to do it because he just wants to spend time with me. And she like gets dressed really fast and she runs to open the front door, but it won't open because she's left the keys on her suitcase. And with one arm, she's just mechanically pulling at the door. And with the other, she leans her head on her arm against the door and she just starts crying quietly and kind of bitterly into her arm against the door. And I just love this self-defeating gesture, like holding the door closed with one arm, trying to keep opening it with the other. It's such a nice way to show that Anna's split, that she's got she's of two minds, right? But I I didn't read it as her locking herself in accidentally. I think it just took all the force she could muster to get dressed and go to the door. But now she can't outrun her doubts. She just doesn't have enough conviction to do that one extra thing, which is grabbing the keys and opening it. She's not physically stuck. She's just emotionally stuck. I read it that way because we do see her like playing with the keys later. Well, that she left the keys on the suitcase. Two symbols of escape, you know, right there. This is rough, right? This is the sequence that I was just kind of screaming at the TV. It's a gut punch, and... Yefremov's face, he's just like, he's not saying anything, he's just hes just so silently distraught. He's not over-emoting, it's so subtle, but yeah, you can just see the pain on his face as he's, as, you know, his hope is ebbing away that she'll make this date and not stand him up. I really love this scene because even though Oleg Yefremov has the car, he has mobility. He has more money than she does at this point, more knowledge about Moscow. He has more power in every single way, except in this big conclusive scene, Anna has more power, right? And she has power in this extremely filmic way. She has the power of the gaze. Like in cinema, the person who sees more has more information and therefore more power, right? And she's high up. She's protecting. She's hidden. She's watching Oleg down below on the street, vulnerable, dressed up, turning down work, waiting for her. And Anna is taking as long as she needs to make up her mind. And you see him looking up from the ground and you can just see that vast kind of landscape of all these windows. And there's no way he's going to be able to pick her out in all of these windows. Whereas because of her privileged vantage point and how exposed he is on that square next to the titular cafe... It, yeah, as you said, Jana, the, the the normal roles are totally on their head, uh, and it's it's brilliantly done. That she doesn't lean out the window and call to him. She's just like, please, just yell I down to the street. I know. 
I was dying for you to do that. I had this thought that like the, like you say, Ali, like the, the windows in the apartment building, there's a fisheye effect as well. So they seem to be like, kind of like coming in at him and they look really dark and vacant and scary. And this is such a contrast to this moment earlier when Anna is singing and Oleg is realizing that she's singing his song and he's having this like intense love moment and the camera leaves the car for the first time. It's like their their love, their attraction is too intense for us. We have to take a breath of fresh air. The camera leaves the car and it just kind of like floats over other cars and the sea of cars in Moscow. And you get this idea that like the city is full of these like little bubbles of, of love. Each car is a story and the city feels really warm and inviting. And here it's the opposite. The city feels or these windows in this blank apartment building feel extremely threatening and isolating. Just as an aside here, a film podcast that I, I really love called Falling in Love Montage that covers chick flicks they have a, a tick box for chick flicks that that, uh, that they call sexy precipitation and we do have some some very sexy pre- precipitation during that car sequence as you were as you were describing you see the you see the city and there's all this rain but it's still somehow romantic and not miserable which it would actually be to be caught out in the rain like that. <laughs> oh, tell you what, as, as someone who lived there for five years, the rain in the summer, it comes down so, so fast and so hard. It's just not nice to be caught out in. Whereas here, it rains more, but it's more of a sort of steady drizzle, which is not nice either. But also, you're not going to get absolutely drenched to the skin. But anyway, that was like a double aside. So <laughs> apologies there. I think you wrote in the notes, and I don't see it right now. Uh, when we first see Sasha slash Oleg, he's at one point after he drops off the, his first fare, I think, like we see a really wide shot of, I talked about how beautiful Moscow is in the morning with no one out there. And he's in this big traffic circle or, or some sort of a circle. And you pointed out what that circle was and that it was uh, the statue was the guy who came up with the Secret Service. Is that right? Yeah. So it is Derzhinsky Square, as it was known then. And I don't know where they took the shot from, but it looks like they took the shot literally from the Lubyanka building, which was the secret police building, which I kind of wondered, am I reading too much into this? But also that statue is no longer there. When the Soviet Union fell, the Dzerzhinsky statue was moved to this museum park, which is where they moved the majority of the communist statues from that era. So you can still see them. It's right next to the new Tretyakov art gallery, but they're also not in these like privileged places in the city of reverence. And there's actually a like an ongoing debate in, in Russia about whether that Dzerzhinsky statue should move back to its former place, which as I guess you can imagine, if it moves back there, that's symbolically very bad because that's not good. Wasn't it? Wasn't there a famous photograph too of someone? They pulled down the Jedinsky statue. There was like someone's dog pissed on its face, and that there was like this famous photo that went. Yeah, it's in Svetlana Boym's book about. I think it's called Commonplaces. But yeah, there was this. It, so it, so the pulling down of the statue was like the symbol that the Soviet era is over, that totalitarianism is dead, and we're in a democracy now. And of course, the reinstatement of that statue is symbolic and frightening. 
I remember them having a lot of fun with fallen statues in Goldeneye. <laughs> I hate to say it, but he gets in his car, he honks his horn quite a few times, and then off he goes, and that's it. That's the end of the sequence, and oh my goodness. The horn seems like the frustrated crying out of him, like he's pissed off, just like, or disappointed, or just screaming at the sky with just this horn that he's doing, because he doesn't make a peep otherwise. He's so quiet. She's stuck in the apartment. She's not crying out loudly. She's not bawling her eyes out. I'm sitting at home basically doing the same thing, but ah, and then cut to her on top of this flatbed with her suitcase next to her. And the driver blames her for the rain that uh, she brought the rain back from Moscow. You know, oh yeah, we're living under the same roof as Moscow, he says. And uh, he starts to notice the, the truck driver notices that she's distraught. And um, yeah, eventually gets her home and we get to see, you know, the presents that she bought for the kids. We get to see Grishka is waiting there for her. And then tenderness comes on the radio. And the kids seem so happy to hear the song. But she doesn't really feel that way. I mean, we get to see all of these emotions again play out on her face. And man, oh man, what a fucking ending of this movie. She's hearing it on the radio, and then that's when it snaps for her. Like the song that she was singing, her favorite song, the song she was singing to Sasha, happened to be the same one he had been looking for on the radio. She she just looks around in amazement, and she's like quietly overcome with emotion. And Grisha's like, "So, what did you get for yourself?" But she doesn't hear him. She's she's crying silently. She's just sta- standing there facing her family, and she's just staring at them. And she's staring at the, the space in front of them. And Grisha asks her again, like angrily, like, what, didn't you hear me? What did you get for yourself? And the kids are nervous. They're like, don't make Grisha mad. But she's just staring blankly at him. And then she frowns. And the camera holds on her frown with for what feels like minutes. And the frown deepens. And it looks like the face of someone doomed to me. And it just, it looks condemned. And we slowly fade to black. And I don't know, man, like three, three poplars of Fushika is remembered as this like great love story, but we spend 90% of the film locked inside one character's conflicted mind. And, and for me, the film is suspenseful because it's like a guessing game. Like how much will it take for this traditional woman to leave her harsh, lonely marriage? Like, is it going to take a hot car ride? Is it going to take seeing how happy her sister-in-law is after leaving her husband? Like, it's 1968, the space race is on, and I feel like this film is testing how much force it's going to take to get the stationary body into orbit. I don't know, man, the, the ending's really powerful, and it supports a reading of this film, not as a romance, I feel like, not as a melodrama even, but like as a subversive character study. Like, we don't, we don't leave Anna longing for another man. This isn't longing or it's not love on her face at the end. She's facing her family and she looks condemned. I don't know. Like this isn't a revolutionary film, right? Like what's what's at stake is divorce, something every second Soviet marriage ended in between the 60s and the 80s on average, despite overwhelming state and societal pressure to stay married. Like this film didn't, it didn't raise eyebrows. It didn't test censorship, but it did place at its core, like real issues that were destroying Soviet marriages. And it places the blame on the husband. 
at a time when the state had largely assigned this blame to wives for becoming too masculinized. But it's like, it's like this film is refuting that reading, right? Like Anna is this very conservative, classically feminine character demonstrating profound dissatisfaction in her traditional marriage. I think about Grisha's final line, like, what did you do for yourself? What did you get for yourself? And the answer is nothing. Like her frown is the answer. She returned to her family. Everyone's pleased. Everyone's happy except Anna. And so I feel like the final expression, it, it's a note of tragedy. We end, we end on a note of tragedy. It's tragic that she sacrificed her own desires to maintain the status quo for her families. And it's not a heroic martyrdom either. Like her, her regret is so deep that it looks like nausea. You know, it's like, I, I really feel like this film is a, a subtle challenge to the Soviet doctrine of putting the needs of the group before your personal needs, which was an expectation that weighed doubly heavily on women. I kept a, a photo of Anna's final frown on my desktop for a while to remind myself not to like end up regretting inaction. I don't think this is some feminist classic, but it's interesting and, and you can really find empowerment in it if you want to. Well, you know, it's always better to regret something you have done than something you haven't done. Such a gut punch. Right? Yeah. Or an alternative answer to Grisha's question, what did you get for yourself is uh, a secret that I'm going to have to take to my grave. There are two films that I think would be like really fun to watch with Three Poplars on Plyushika because they're both like alternate reality versions of it with the same stars. We've talked about like Soviet filmmakers during the the 50s and the 60s, they're finally able to explore psychological struggles of individuals rather than the triumph of the collective. And so earlier in the 50s and 60s, these individuals are men. They are young men. These are the protagonists whose psychology gets explored. But by the late 60s, it's clear to anyone who can read a newspaper that the people experiencing the greatest psychological struggles are women. Women are being vilified in the press for becoming too independent. They're working multiple jobs, they're caregiving, and they're handling really challenging marriages. Abandonment, intimate, intimate partner violence, alcoholism, these things are really kicking men to the periphery of Soviet family life. Many women are, are raising kids single-handedly. And there's a lot of tension around that because women are, are often in charge of households and they have a lot of power in a patriarchal society that provides more opportunities for men and expects men to be more in control. So there's a lot of tension kind of pulling marriages apart and kind of testing ideas about gender. With all of this crisis, like the state is complaining about low birth rates, divorce rates that are high, women becoming too masculinized, too independent, men becoming too feminized, too passive. What happens is that like the attention of filmmakers turns to these women who are experiencing all of this burden financially and emotionally and how they're handling it becomes the topic of a lot of films. And like two, two genres are kind of born out of this. There are women's pictures, which like tend to feature strong professional urban women with families who are dissatisfied, usually due to like the absence of a partner or a lack of personal fulfillment. Um, and we're going to talk about these films next week, I think. But the other like big female centric genre of the late sixties in Soviet cinema is melodrama. And that's more likely to have a romance at its core. In melodramas at the time, we see like these independent women without families navigate big cities confidently and they fall in love and they often have no interest in marriage. These women have renounced the double burden of work outside the home and inside the home. And they're not going to stand for any violence or emotional neglect. 
And so a key example of this genre is a film called One More Time About Love or Once More About Love. And it's like, it's this weird, like funhouse mirror of Three Poplars. It also comes out in 1968. It also stars Tatiana Doronina, who plays Anna in this film. And at the time, she was even more famous and even more beloved for One More Time About Love. And she's the opposite of Anna, right? Her character is a flight attendant, so her job is international travel. She's super independent. She has no family ties. She's totally comfortable, like, navigating Moscow on the subway and eating alone in restaurants. She's got this, like, stylish short bouffant hairdo that became super trendy. And her character is really vocal about demanding respect in her interactions with men. And she's super confident sexually, too. She, like, meets a stranger in Moscow. She goes to his house. She initiates sex. And then in the morning, she leaves him with a note on a box of chocolate saying, we're not going to see each other again. So the director of this film, Georgi Natinsen, like, had a ton of trouble getting the script approved because this behavior of Tatiana Doronina's character was considered, like, amoral and anti-Soviet. But even the censored final cut, like, never condemns Natasha's behavior. So it's like, it's kind of, yeah, it's just like a weird opposite of this film. And the nice thing is Oleg Efremov is in it too. And he plays the second male lead. So it's nice to see them together again in the same year. And then there was another film that came out that I thought would be really fun to, to pair with Three Poplars and Pliushika. And it's called Mama Got Married. And it's either like, I think 1969 or 1970. And it's a coming of age story about a teenage boy who's like pretty happy living with just his mom. But the mom has a secret boyfriend and they're moving in together and they're going to get married. And the new stepdad is Oleg Efremov. And his character is really, really, he's like a more affable, slightly more lovable version of this character in Three Poplars and Pliushika. But we see him start becoming a new stepdad. And so it's interesting to see that character like a year later kind of filling that role. And like, we can imagine what Sasha would be like. Oh, that would be nice. Yes, please leave Grishka. Bring the kids. That's fine. Bring the kids. They deserve happiness, too. And, yeah, go ahead with the new stepdad, this taxi driver who can bring home some bacon rather than making you go sell a ham in the public square. I was really frustrated by Anna's choice to stay with Grisha. I was thinking about why, and I've, I've been doing this research project for two years on gender and Soviet cinema. Traditional ideas about about marriage are left over from the czarist era and they're still super pervasive. And like a lot of women at the time are raised to believe that getting married is like their greatest goal and achievement in life. And Soviet life was like this endless stream of bureaucracy, right? So every time you need to do anything, you have to bring your documents and they clearly show your marriage status. And to be unmarried is to be abnormal, right? In a society that highly values conformity to stand out is to be suspect and to be suspect is to be denied basic things like a raise or like permission to go on holiday. And one reason that the Soviet state values marriage so highly is because it relies on women to keep men and children ideologically in line. It also relies on women to do childcare, uh, caring for elderly people, domestic chores, shopping, and working full-time because the Soviet state broke a promise to women in the 1930s. This film, Three Poplars on Pliushika, it's exciting to me having looked into kind of Soviet gender issues because it confronts real issues for a lot of Soviet women in the 60s, which are like abandonment, intimate partner violence, the double or triple burden of expected work on women compared with men and like state-sponsored stigma associated with divorce. 
And these issues are common everywhere, but they have a really specific history in the Soviet Union compared with the US or the UK. And it all starts with, like I said, the Soviet state breaking this promise to women in the 30s. It kind of starts a little bit earlier, like the Bolsheviks come to power in Russia in 1917. And right away, in their first months of existence, they pass laws that try to unravel the nuclear family. And the nuclear family was a problem for the early Soviets because each family unit had been like its own little state with a patriarch at its head. So under the czar, women legally had to, quote, uh, submit to their husbands in all things. So if each patriarch has complete control over the people in his household, this limits the power of the Soviet government to mobilize and foment a global uprising, which was their goal in the early 20s, right? And so how do you undermine the patriarchs in each household? Like you do it with war, you do it with state terror campaigns, you do it with intentional uh, famines and purges. But initially, you do it by changing everyone's ideas about like what men and women should be doing. And the early Soviets saw women as this, and especially married women, as this weak link in society because they were deprived of decision making and deprived of independence and kind of like overburdened by caregiving and domestic chores. And so they were potentially open to recruitment. But even the most radical Bolsheviks had this really determinist vision of gender. So they were like, all women raise kids, right? So if we ally ourselves with women, we end up raising a new generation of communists. So pretty much as soon as the, they get into power, the Bolsheviks pass laws that really empower women and they disenfranchise men. And the role of the father is pretty much just shrunk to the payment of alimony. Like women can now get divorces easily. They can keep their property afterward. Marriage is reduced to just something that happens in an office, if at all. Everyone has the same rights regardless. And this, so this is in the teens and 20s. Meanwhile, the state is like waging multiple wars and it needs bodies for this. And it needs, it, it's starting to industrialize. So there are, there's all these like work projects. And it says, listen, women, go out and get jobs. We, the state, will take care of everything you used to do at home, like all your domestic work, all childcare, everything. We're, we're just going to take care of everything. Give us your kids to raise. No problem. There's going to be public sewing centers, public laundries. You're going to eat in canteens. It's all taken care of. So men are men are kind of pushed to the side. They are expected to find all their identity and all their satisfaction and all their fulfillment at work and within the party. And for everyone, kind of having family ties is seen as selfish. It's seen as a distraction from your duty to the revolution. So in this way, like the state becomes the new patriarch. It, it controls resources. It, it's in charge of punishment and care and instruction. So the goal is for people to be reliant on the state, not each other. And all of this is in the teens and 20s. And by 1930, the government has already broken its promises to women. It never takes over the domestic roles it promises. It, it fails to provide childcare and medical care. Like throughout Soviet history, like no efforts from the state are ever enough to leave women of the traditional responsibilities at home that everyone still expects from them. And basically, women are just plunged into the workforce on top of everything else. So the state creates this idealized image of the worker mother who is always working, always, at, you know, she's working at home or she's working on an industrial site, often both in the same day. And it describes motherhood as a woman's most important contribution to the country. And there are like awards that the state gives out for women who have had a certain number of kids. And, um, and within the family unit, the state encourages mothers to make sure everyone is ideologically and culturally sound. Like married women are in charge of propagating Soviet thinking at home. So I think my my earlier point was just that like, the state is really encouraging people to stay in marriages that are untenable 
because they are unequal. Women have a triple burden compared with men. They're not just they're not just also working. They're working at home and they're also in charge of maintaining an emotional balance at home, which means essentially like belittling their contributions and kind of like boosting their husband's ego to create a emotional balance that benefits everyone. Meanwhile, domestic violence rates are super scary high. I really wanted Anna to to leave Grisha, but like, what are you going to do? You want to be considered normal. You were raised to consider marriage not only necessary, but your key goal. There are few men of marrying age around because the state keeps waging wars and state terror campaigns, and it starts these shock industrial projects with very low levels of safety. So it's the number of men of marrying age is really limited. So competition for a husband could be like super fierce, apparently. And, um, and you know, violence is so prevalent that it's normalized. So I think these are some factors that kept Anna's married to Grisha's in the mid-60s. And Grisha has all the money, too. And Anna has no real mobility or help with childcare. So, like, what's she going to do? I'm glad that we saw this movie. At the same time, this movie made me so sad. Just incredibly sad. Why is it considered a romance? Because there's a possible romance, but that it doesn't have that. And, and there's so many movies that end with that sadness of the two ships that passed in the night, the, the missed connection at the end. It happens quite a bit. And uh, this is one of those films that it still feels very relevant and very modern, even coming from 1968. If this film did not seem like it had dated at all in a lot of aspects. I think about Grisha's violence, and I realize, I remember that like Putin decriminalized domestic violence in 2017, which is just like, for fuck's sake. Like now, so now if it's the first time someone in your house attacks you, you can't really file a report. Maybe the cops will fine, will issue a small fine, but that usually comes out of like the household budget. So it really punishes survivors as well as perpetrators. And um, and it also, it just um, described NASILU, which is like the main aid organization for survivors of domestic violence. It recently classified it as a foreign agent, which means that it's it's undermined trust in it and has like financial consequences. Yeah, it feels really relevant. And hopefully it's also relevant because there's still love in the world. I don't know, I don't know how to save this. Yeah, it feels like with the current russian regime that the soviet union broke so many promises but some yeah man i feel like i have to be really careful here but like you at least feel like they sometimes when it would be nice if we could have this whereas yeah the putin regime is just like violence patriarchy that's good and if you don't think that's good what's wrong with you you're not a true patriot Tatiana Lyosnova, right, she's this this well-known, well-regarded Soviet director. She directed Three Poplars on Plyushka, one of the few female female directors to get her start in the 50s. But she's she's most famous for directing the most famous Soviet TV show ever, 17 Moments of Spring. And it tells the story of this Soviet spy in Nazi Germany working under the name Maxoto von Stierlitz. And it airs in 1973. Uh, and when it was on TV, the streets would clear. It was just so popular. So like fast forward 25 years, the Soviet Union has collapsed. Boris Yeltsin is this crumbling, deeply unpopular, embarrassing alcoholic leader. And the people in power in the new Russian state are the oligarchs. And they're making it clear that like Yeltsin has got to go. 
And Russia is now officially a democracy. So there's got to be an election, right? And the political technologists, the kind of like PR, PR people who manage elections on behalf of certain interests, they're like scratching their heads and they're like, like, what type of leader can we get people to elect? And so a leading political technologist at the time, Gleb Pavlovsky, comes up with this idea for a survey about people's heroes. And they're like, the survey asks people to rank like who they like from most to least from a list that includes popular film depictions of political leaders like Stalin and Peter the Great and Lenin. But surprisingly, the most people voted for Stirlitz, this KGB agent working in Germany from Tatiana Leosnova's TV show in the 70s. And he's kind of like the anti-Yeltsin, like he's quiet, he's sober, he's young, he's tactical. And Pavlovsky said in a PBS interview, we realized that we needed a young, strong, powerful intelligence officer. There were two options, and one of those options won. So who is this person who won? Vladimir Putin, <laughs> the, new, the new head of the Secret Service who had recently returned from working for the KGB in Dresden in Germany. So like, I don't want to make too much of this, but like, this director's choices may have had like, a real fucking impact. Gleb Pavlovsky is super interesting. He became a Putin advisor, and then he left Russia and started like, openly criticizing Putin. And he's been giving like really damning interviews lately. He's super interesting. And thus the importance of talking about Soviet cinema. Kind of started off talking with the Amphibian Man, and I know we've got one more week to go of this, but it's like stuff from 1968 that we're talking about, 1962, all these things, they all really kind of still have resonance today. So it's not like we're talking about things that are hermetically sealed and have no impact on the world outside of them, just as the standalone pieces of film. There's people behind these, there's themes, there's stuff that's been going on and stuff that will continue to go on. So... God, that's fascinating to hear about that TV show. And just even, yeah, this is, I think, our first female director. And when next week, we're going to talk about another female director as well. So I'm glad that we're kind of moving into this realm. Thank you so much, Mike, for taking taking a punt on this uh, on this suggestion of a like relatively obscure film. I, I feel like I've got so much out of just having having this talk with you two. Definitely. No, you guys have brought it so much in this series, and I am just so glad that you agreed to be a part of this because it's just it, – it's making this such a rich experience. You are bringing so much to this that I never would have ever picked up on. Just I never would have watched so many of these movies, and I'm so glad that we did. I mean, I will probably rank – Welcome or No Trespassing is one of my favorite comedies now for years to come because it was so much fun. And this movie, I will never be able to forget this, especially because of all that heartbreak at the end of it. It's that classic Russian ending. <laughs> you mentioned it. You mentioned that ending. And there it is. It's Ichthyander walking out into the sea. Ah. I'm so glad that you chose this, Ali, too, because I, I never would have come back to it. And I love it. I love it. I'm so grateful. Yeah. And thank you so much for this opportunity, Micah. It's been such a pleasure researching these things. Well, I'm so glad that you've been doing so much for this. I, I really appreciate it. Let's go ahead and take a break and play a trailer for next week's show. My name is T2756. Would you like to have sex with me now for money? Worst Movies Ever Played is back with three new VHS movies for your ears. Sextipede, you're alive again. <gasps> How I've 
have missed you. Anything can happen in this actual play RPG podcast, and we mean anything. You didn't think you could go to Texas Instruments without murdering someone, did you? <laughs> Subscribe to Worst Movies Ever Played wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Нет, почему? Тебе надо меня разоблачать. Тебе надо доказать. Ну, что доказать? Что не знаю, ты? не знаю. Наверное, что я бездельник, что ли. Одна ты живешь так, остальные все не так. Тебе надо, чтобы человек вертелся, как автомат заведенный. Чтобы ему было тошно. А? Да здравствует чувство долга. Вот тогда ты его будешь уважать. Сочувствовать, но уважать. Я вовсе не кручусь из чувства долга. Мне это нравится. Ну, конечно, конечно. Одна ты настоящая, остальные же все бумажные. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at two films, Brief Encounters and Long Farewells. Until then, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Gianna and Alistair. So, Gianna, what's been keeping you busy? Oh, boy, you guys. I just found out this week that I am likely losing my job in a couple oh, of months. Oh, no. So I am I am looking for work, baby. Um, yeah, but I if I have free time, I might write something about a recentish queer Serbian film that I've just fallen in love with. It's called Celts. It's on YouTube, and I think any fan of the show might love it. It's about like two high drama parties that take place in the same apartment on the same night, and one is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle themed. So that is what I'll be writing about. Next. How do you spell that? Celts. Celts. Yeah. Like C-E-L-T-S. Okay, I wasn't sure if it's a C yeah. or a K. Yeah, and the director is Milica Tomovic, and I think it came out last year, 2021. It's so good. And Ali, how about yourself? As well as talking about Russian and Soviet films on my podcast, Files Unite, I also make a REM track-by-track show called Gentlemen Don't Get Caught with my friend Lynn. So we are up to... Oh, uh, we're just getting out of the big 90s hit albums and into their sort of, I, I guess, what generally is known as their sort of gradual decline. But yeah, if you're really into R.E.M., do check that out as, as that has been fun, because I only knew them for a few albums. And my friend was just like, hey, want to do a track by track R.E.M. podcast? This was like at the height of the initial lockdown and we're we're still plugging away and we're getting towards the end. So, yeah, if you like like Russian movies, or you like R.E.M., or both, check those out. And, you know, Jan, I hope somebody from maybe like the BFI or somebody is listening and it's just like, hey, got to give this person a job because, uh, my God, the, the passion that you bring to discussions about film and your penchant for research is just fantastic. It's what I love doing. It's what gives me energy. Thank you so much for saying that, Mike Wade. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps projection booth take over the world.
Куда-то все спешат такси. Если можешь прилетать 